0: When you wish upon a star, makes no difference who you are, anything your heart desires will come to you. I've been here 30 years. I'm never going to fire me. I can do whatever I want. <laughs> what movie is that from? Okay, good. Pinocchio. Pinocchio. You guys are like, uh, I don't know. There was a fairy and some kind of princess. I don't know. Pinocchio. And, and it worked too, right? Because in the end, he became a real boy. He became a real boy. All right. While we're doing our movie trivia, uh, let's try this one. I gotta get the posture just right. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. Right? What is that? Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz. And it worked. Cause she got to go home and see Auntie M. Right? Right. How about this one, watch the screen.
1: I don't think you quite realize what you got here. So why don't you just ruminate whilst I illuminate the possibilities? Well, Alibaba had them 40 Thieves, Sherry's out, he had a thousand tales. But Master, you in luck, cause up your sleeves, you got a brand of magic, never fails. You got some power in your corner now. That's heavy ammunition in your camp. You got some punch to dance. and Halsey, all you gotta do is rub that lamp. And I'll say, Mr. Alan, sir, what will your pleasure be? Let me take your order, judge it down. You ain't never had a friend like me. <laughs> If your restaurant, and I'm your melody. Come on, whisper what it is you want. You ain't never had a friend like me. Yes, sir, we pride ourselves on service. You're the boss, the king, the shah! Say what you wish, it's yours, true dish, about a little more baklava. as some of column A, try all of Column B. I'm in the mood to help you, dude. You ain't never had a friend like me. No oh, man. No, no. Can your friends do this? Can your friends do that? Can your friends pull this out of their little hat? Can your friends go. Hey, look here. here. Can your friends go? Abracadabra. Let her run. And then make the sucker dis-off, yeah so Don't you sit there dance like John Bucky-eyed I'm here to Angelo, he'll be deathless You got me bona fide certified You got a genie for a charge of the I got a power, boy. To help you out, so what you wish, I really want to know. we got a list that's three miles long, no doubt. Well, all you gotta do is drop like so, <laughs> Mr. Aladdin, sir, have a wish, or two or three. I'm on the job, you big nabob. You ain't never had a friend, never had a friend. You ain't never had a friend, never had a friend. You ain't never had a friend. <laughs>
0: Okay, anybody want to guess what that movie is? (laughs) You guys are really good. And it worked for him too, didn't it? Sort of. For a while. Kind of worked for him. Turns out women don't like when you lie to them. So that didn't exactly work out for him. But anyway... Some of us have a similar track record with religion. Some of us have clicked our heels together three times and rubbed every lamp we could find religiously and, and thought that if we did this or that or the other thing and followed the rules and all of that kind of stuff, that somehow we would get our wishes granted. Somehow we would get all of our desires met and a lot of us have have really come up empty on that. I have a I have a lifelong friend, a childhood friend, who uh, was raised Catholic, very strong Catholic family in church every Sunday, and like a lot of young kids in Catholic church, he did a lot of twiddling his thumbs and wondering what this was all about, but he knew he had to sit still and be quiet and not get in trouble, and he sort of did that and was raised in that, and it never made a lot of sense to him, and he was sort of uh, drifting a little bit, um, just kind of... Not so much from his faith, but from his involvement in the church when he met a girl who would become his love and eventually his wife, and it turns out she was Mormon. And so he started going with her to Mormon services, and he started seeing people who were actually living out some of what they believed And he wasn't so concerned whether what they believed made a lot of sense. It was nice for him to see people whose religion actually meant something in their daily lives. And so he got drawn into that. And mostly for the girl, he became a Mormon and he eventually became really involved in Mormonism and only to find that after a while, uh, things went sour in his marriage. He ended up divorced and he found himself an ex-Catholic an ex-Mormon and divorced and today he is a staunch atheist. Today he is he is one of those atheists who who holds up signs. He's one of those atheists who believes that it is his responsibility to make sure that everybody else becomes an atheist too. And uh, he is bitter, and he is angry, and he is mad at God. And uh, his his motto is essentially, "There is no God, and I hate him." Because, you know, you can, you can try to follow religious systems. You can try to jump through religious hoops. You can do all the religious stuff. But as a lot of us know, it doesn't always change your life. And that is a really bad thing when you, when you sincerely try to do religion. And then it ends up leaving you empty. Because what happens is, very often, those people become very angry with God, they become bitter toward God, they become closed toward God, they lose hope in their lives. And, and they have to go through what everybody else has to go through, because in this life you have to go through some stuff, right? And, and they have to go through that stuff, and, and they don't have an answer for the God question. And they don't have an answer for the eternity question. And just like you and me, they have to go to funerals from time to time. And they sit there scratching their chin and pondering and wondering, what does all of this mean? And there is no hope for them next to the graveside. And there will be no hope for their loved ones when they're the ones in the grave. So it's kind of a big deal if if religion uh, doesn't work for you. It can really lead to something terrible. Have you ever heard about someone who who really needs to get his life together and finally he found religion and that changed everything? I'm not sure that's always a good thing because I've known a lot of people for whom religion was just another heavy bag to carry and all it did was push him down. To show you what I mean, I want to invite you to go back with me about 3,000 years. We're going to go back into the Old Testament. Uh, We're going to go back to the book of 1 Samuel where we were a couple weeks ago. I want you to find 1 Samuel in your um, Bibles. Go to the Old Testament, 1 Samuel, and we're going to get to chapter 4 eventually. So go ahead and turn there and be ready. And while you're turning to 1 Samuel 4, I want to sort of set the stage and help you to understand we're about to see a battle scene. And battle scenes in those days were very different than battle scenes today. They're very different than what you've seen in the movies. Uh, In their culture and in their time, uh, there was very few ambushes, very few surprise attacks. Battles were generally planned out. There was a time and a place. It was almost the way you think of gentlemen doing a duel. I'll meet you at dawn in such and such a place. That's kind of how they planned their battles most of the time. And so, as, as is typically the case in the Old Testament, when the nation of Israel is fighting, they're fighting the Philistines. And the Philistines have now camped on one side of a valley. And on that side of the valley, you have this encampment And their army is just building and building and building. On the other side of that same valley, as the hills begin to go up in the other direction, you have the Israelite camp, and they have camped, and they are waiting. Now, battles in these days are fought hand to hand, and they are fought during daylight hours. And when the sun goes down, you stop fighting. And everybody goes back to their sides. And you come back the next day at sunrise... And you resume the battle. Seems strange to us. We wouldn't do it that way. It's kind of like the, the British wearing red uh, jackets and marching in lines and standing and firing while the, uh, the colonial army is firing at them from the trees. It's a hard to understand the, the shift in the way it was done, but that's how it was done in those days. And so as we get to First Samuel chapter 4, we find them camped and ready to go. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1, thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer, while the Philistines camped in Aphek. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. So we get day one of the battle. They meet in the middle. When the sun goes down and they go back to their camps, imagine the most gruesome, bloody, horrific war battle scene you can ever imagine. 4,000 Israelite bodies, not to mention however many Philistines were killed. 4,000 Israelite bodies laying, some decapitated, all covered in blood. Now, when you think about 4,000, you, it's hard, to, it's hard to, to sort of go, well, is that a lot for a battle? <clears throat> Let me help you put some perspective on it. The, the bloodiest battle ever fought on U.S. soil was the Battle of Gettysburg. And the Battle of Gettysburg was a three-day, nonstop, 24-hour-a-day, three-day battle and in those 72 hours, there were 3,155 Union soldiers killed. And this one day, there was 4,000 Israelite soldiers killed. Without any rifles, without any muskets, without any cannons, without any artillery to speak of of any kind. Hand-to-hand combat, 4,000 men. Now, before you just pass that on and go, oh, well, that's too bad. Those men had families. Every one of those men was somebody's husband, somebody's father, somebody's son, somebody's brother. I mean, this is a massive, massive, massive massacre. It's a slaughter. 4,000 killed in one day of one battle. It's horrific. And it makes you wonder... We, we know, I mean, hopefully, unless this is your first day in the Old Testament, you probably know that in these battles, the Philistines are the bad guys and the Israelites are the good guys. They're the people of God. So it really doesn't matter. We see it over and over again. We see small little bands of Israelite men go into battle against thousands of trained soldiers, but God kills the other side. And it would have to make you wonder, in this situation, how is it that God has abandoned his own people? How does he allow something like this to happen? They wondered the same thing. Look at verse 3. When the people came into the camp, this is in the evening of that first day, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let's stop there. Why has the Lord defeated us? They understood God clearly did not fight for us. In fact, the way they saw it, God fought against them. Why is it, they they wondered, as the generals gathered together in a tent that night to figure out what to do, why is it that God abandoned us? Why is it that God turned against us? Why is it that somehow God has become our enemy? But then they figured it out. Look at the rest of that verse. Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. Why is it that God has abandoned us? Oh, wait a second. God didn't abandon us. We forgot to bring God to the battle. Suddenly they realize now now before you just pass that on and think nothing of it, I want you to stop and, and know some of the history. I mean, the recent history of the Ark of the Covenant. You know the Ark of the Covenant, it was that it was that box that, that was the center of their worship. It was placed in the tabernacle, would later be placed in the temple. It was the, the center of God's presence, the symbol of God's presence with his people, the Ark of the Covenant. And they said, We need to go to Shiloh and get the Ark. And so they decided, let's go back to Shiloh and we will get the ark. Because they remembered that when, if you read the book of Exodus, they spend 40 years in the wilderness and finally it is time to cross over into the promised land. The problem is that between where they are and the promised land that God has promised them is the Jordan River. Normally not that big of a deal, except that the Jordan River is at flood stage, and so the river is raging, it's twice as wide as normal, and there's no way for them to get across. And they can literally see, picture a little kid who, who drove all the way from Georgia with his family to go to Disneyland, and he gets as far as the parking lot, and the sign says, closed. And he's sitting in the parking lot going, oh, I gotta get in. That's what they were doing. And they didn't know what to do. How do we get across the Jordan? And God told Joshua, he said, here's what you do. I want you to take the priests, have them take the Ark of the Covenant, and I want them to wade out into the water. And when they get to the middle of the water with the Ark of the Covenant, I will cause the water to stop flowing and you'll be able to go through on dry land. And with the Ark of the Covenant in the middle of the river, all two million of those Israelites crossed over into the promised land. That's the power of the Ark of the Covenant. And then, then once they get into the Promised Land, what do they see? A fortified, walled city called Jericho. This is your first conquest. Take Jericho. These people can't take Jericho. These are not soldiers, these are brickmakers. They have no experience whatsoever in, in armed battle. And God says, don't worry, I have a plan. Here's what you do. Take the Ark of the Covenant, put it in front of all the people and let the priests walk with the Ark on their shoulders, carrying it on those acacia poles around the city. And when you've gone around enough times and the Ark of the Covenant has surrounded that city, then I want you to blow your horns. And they did it and the walls fell down. So, so this is the history to them. This is not ancient History. This is recent history. They know what the ark is all about. They know who God is and how powerful he is. And they have left God in another city when they went to fight. And so they finally figured it out. Let's go get the ark. And it's amazing how this ends up happening. Look at verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh. And from there they carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who sits above the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant. Now, Eli is the high priest. Hophni and Phinehas are his deputies. They are his sons. They are the priests, basically, because Eli has become so old that they are now carrying out the job of the high priest, Hophni and Phinehas. So they come with the Ark of the Covenant, right? So we now have the Ark and we have the priests, Verse 5, as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth resounded. Can you just picture this? Like, they have just getting wiped out in battle, and now what's left of them are so excited because they know this is a game changer. This changes everything. Now God is with us, and with God with us, there's nothing we cannot do. They know for sure that day two is not going to be like day one because now they have God, and they are shouting with such exuberance that the ground literally shakes at the sound of their shouting and the uh, Philistines across the way, they heard it, and they felt the shaking, the the pebbles just beginning to move on the ground by their feet, and here's what it says, verse six. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does that noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? When they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp, and they said, woe to us, I like that, Mm -hmm. woe to us, For nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us. Who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They didn't even understand that there was one true God. They were pagans. They just thought the gods of the Israelites were so mighty, they had heard about how Israel's gods had delivered them from Egypt, and so they were terrified. They didn't even know who God was, but they knew enough to be terrified. These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. In other words, this guy, the the Philistine leader, right, rides out in front of the pack on his horse, and and he looks troubled. One side of his face is painted blue, and the other side is painted white. And he's on his horse, and he's shouting, right? And he's saying, listen, I know there's more of them than, than, than us when they have God, but don't worry. At least we can die in battle. At least we're gonna go out swinging because if we don't die in battle, we'll become their slaves and that's worse than death. So let's get out on that field and let's fight until the very last one of us is dead. There is no hope in his voice. There's no hope in his speech. We're gonna die today. Let's make sure that we die. Their God has come. And so finally, the Israelites had figured it out. Finally, God showed up for the battle. This is awesome. Look at verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was taken. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. They had forgotten their religion on day one. And the result was disastrous. But on day two, even with the ark, the results were far worse. 30,000 dead. Now now we're talking about a number comparable to those who died on D-Day. 30,000 of their men dead. Their army wiped out. And the Ark of God taken by the Philistines and the high priest dead on the battlefield. Have you ever felt like you did everything you were supposed to do religiously and now you just want your money back? Like you you followed the rules, you followed the steps, you you made the sacrifice, you you did all the things you're supposed to do, all the things? Everything you knew to do to be a good Christian, you had done it. And still the boss came with a pink slip. And still they came and evicted you from your house. And still the beeping machine in the hospital stopped beeping. And you prayed. And you went to church every week, and, and you gave sacrificially, and you volunteered, and, and you came on days when you didn't feel like it, and you were, you were just shaking inside, and you sang praises to God anyway, and you believed that God was going to take care of you, and still it hit the fan. Israel was massacred that day. The people of God even though they had done their religious duty. Now, some of you might be thinking, you know what? I've read these stories before. They always end well. I bet if we just keep reading, it'll get better. Listen, I invite you to keep reading when you get home, but let me just summarize what happens for the rest of the chapter. A messenger from the field runs back to the city and he finds Eli, the old high priest, And Eli is sitting in a chair, and when he tells him that his sons have died, and the ark has been taken, Eli falls out of his chair, hits his head, and dies. And and they go to tell his daughter-in-law, the wife of one of the men who had just died, what had happened. She's pregnant, but not yet ready to deliver The shock sends her into labor. She goes into labor early. She delivers a premature child. The child lives, but the mother doesn't survive the childbirth. And her very last words with her dying breath are to name the child. And she says, he shall be called Ichabod, which means the glory of God has departed. And that's the end of the chapter. It doesn't get better. It gets worse. I guess this is why this is not a favorite kid's Sunday school flannel graph story. (laughs) Uh, It's hard to explain how you can do everything you've been taught to do religiously and it doesn't work out for you. Much better to tell a story about a kid who kills a giant, right? Right? where the good guy wins where God's people get what they want but that's not what happened here they they had done everything they could do they had wished upon a star they had clicked their heels together three times they rubbed that lamp like crazy they carried the magic box into camp and it didn't matter Those lucky enough to survive watched the glory depart as the Philistines walked away with the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God. And and you know how long it lasted? 20 years. 20 years, God just, the people of, of Israel crying out to God and God not listening to his own people. Their friends were dead. Their spiritual leaders were dead. The symbol of their faith was gone. And don't miss the symbolism of that. God departing from his people. And they had done what they were supposed to do. And if you listen in church, you will often get three steps to what you're supposed to do, right? Three steps to good religion. And, and they followed the steps. Step number one for good religion, admit that you need God's help, right? That's what you've been taught when you're struggling. At some point, you have to come to the end of yourself. You have to cry out and go, I admit I need God's help. I can't do this on my own. All of the good stories begin there. My good religion begins with admitting that I need God's help. Had they done that? Yes, They messed up big time on day one. They went back in the evening and they went, oh no, we've been trying to do this without God. We need God's help. Step number two, call on God and give him your problems. I mean, that's what this whole series has been about, laying down your burdens, right? Calling out to God and saying, God, I don't want to carry this anymore. That's what they did. They called on God. They went and found God. And they said, God, we need you. Come with us. And they brought his box back to the battle. They called on God. Step number three, you have to have faith. You've got to believe. I mean, how many times have we been told if if it's not happening, I know you prayed, but you must not really believe. Your faith must not be strong enough. You have to really, really believe. Listen, did they believe so much that the ground shook? They had no doubt that God was gonna deliver them on day two. They were absolutely sure that the good things they were expecting from God were coming in the morning. They knew that there might be weeping at night, but joy comes in the morning. They had sung it. They had heard it. And they believed it so much that they shouted and shook the earth. Some of us know exactly what that feels like prayed and prayed and prayed, gave it to God, called out to him, I can't handle it, God, please take it. And then every time a little doubt crept in, man, we just pushed it out, I believe, I believe. Positive confession, we'd say it out loud, just make it happen, I believe, I totally believe. We had faith, we followed the rules, and still the divorce papers were delivered. We, we, we called on God, we, we came to the end of ourselves, we believed with all of our hearts, and still there we are, standing by the graveside of a loved one that we cannot live without. Have you been there? I have. Have you followed all the right religious steps and still ended up disappointed and bitter and confused and angry at God. I am convinced that my friend, the atheist, does not really believe that there is no God. I just think his bitterness and disappointment has so overwhelmed him that he cannot bear to believe that there would be a God who would allow him to deal with what he's had to deal with. Some of us might only be here today because we thought religion was going to bail us out. But I have difficult news, guys. God is not a genie in a bottle. He is not our errand boy. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords. And he doesn't call us to be religious. Here's something you probably never thought you'd hear in church. God wants you to stop being religious. Well, today is a great day for our church. After the second service, I know all of you are coming back for the baptism. I lost count. We have eight, nine, ten people being baptized today. It's amazing what God is doing. It's going to be, if you're not planning on coming, change your plans, because you are going to hear life-changing stories today. It's going to be awesome. In the second service, there's two families that are going to be dedicating children to the Lord. We're doing baby dedications in the second service. Baby dedications, have been doing a lot of those lately. Baptisms has been doing a lot of those lately. But the people that are dedicating their babies and the, and the people that are getting baptized this morning are not doing it to jump through religious hoops. They're doing it to walk in relationship with God. The message of the gospel is not that if you get good enough at religion, God will be on your side. That's not the message. The message of the gospel is that even though you could never be good enough to deserve a relationship with God, he sent his son to die on a cross so that you could have the relationship you could never deserve, that you could have the relationship you could never earn, so you could have the relationship you could never merit. And Jesus went to the cross to give you that relationship we think about the mansions in heaven and the streets of gold and the eternal life all of that is great but you take away the relationship with God and heaven becomes hell it's all about the relationship to know God to experience him personally you don't have to earn it you're never going to deserve it but his grace is free and I, and I realize I'm trying, I want to be sensitive because I know that some of us are going through some stuff right now. And I, I don't mean to minimize your pain. I don't want to be condescending. But I want us to understand something. God is not interested in playing our games. If our intention is to keep him in a box out in the garage... And go get him when we finally reach the end and we can't handle it without him. And then stuff him back in his box and put him out in the garage until we need wish number two. God isn't gonna play. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He created the universe and everything in it and that includes you and me. And he insists on sitting on the throne of our lives. He will not be an afterthought. He will not be a good luck charm. He will not be a rabbit's foot. And if that's how you've seen him, it's no wonder that religion has been a burden for you to carry. And a lot of us have are been carrying the religious burden for so long that we're about to get squashed. We've been talking about how to put down the baggage of our old life and our past. We've been talking about how to get away from the guilt and the shame. But, but the problem is that some of us, once we put down that baggage, we jump right into the deep end of religion. And now we're religious. And, and we do what religious people do. And we follow the rules that religious people follow and we think that if we follow all the rules and if we work hard enough for God, if we show up at church every week, if we put a little extra in the offering plate, then God will have to start giving us the life we want. We work, we try, we pray, and we still feel stuck. Listen, (laughs) strange as it sounds, religion can be the biggest baggage you carry. So how do you know if religion has become baggage in your life? Here's a couple things you can look for. If you're doing all the right rituals, but living the wrong lifestyle, then probably religion has become a baggage for you. What do I mean by that? I mean... I mean, you're doing the things that Christians are supposed to do. Like I said, you're coming to church, you're, you're worshiping, you're doing all that kind of stuff. And, and yet, that's the religious part of your life. And then you go live your real life. And then you come back and visit God for the religious part, and then you go live your real life. That's exactly what was happening in Israel in those days. If you go back, I think First Samuel chapter two, maybe it's chapter one, you see about Phineas and Hophni, those high priests that died on the battlefield. You know what they were doing? They were stealing money from the treasury where the people made offerings. You know what else they were doing? They were telling the women who came to worship that there was a sexual aspect to worship. And they were sleeping with the young women who came to worship God in the tabernacle. And, and their father was putting up with it, and he was disappointed, but he just continued to allow them to do their thing. They, they said the right things. They wore the robes. They, they attended the services. They had all the titles. They did all that stuff, but they were setting the example for Israel, and as the leaders go, so go the people, and the people were living the same kind of false religion. It's not that they didn't do the feasts. It's not that they didn't do the sacrifices. It's not that they didn't show up to pray, and they didn't fast on the days of fasting. They they did all of those things. But when they weren't doing those things, they lived like the devil. Listen, God is not willing to wait for you at church. He insists on coming with you to work and, and to the movies and to the clubs and whatever it else it is that you're doing. Every time I think of this, I, I picture the movie The Godfather and the godfather, you have Michael Corleone, and it's this amazing uh, scene inside this beautiful cathedral, and he's going to be the godfather to his nephew or niece, I don't remember which. And, and he's there, and they come up, and the priest is there in all the robes, and, and, and Michael Corleone is denouncing Satan at the same time as the baby is being baptized, and they're, they're cutting to other scenes where he has ordered the murder of dozens of people to all happen during the baptism so that he has an alibi. He walks out of church, clean, beautiful suit, smile on his face, and he's a murderer. And it's okay. Another way to tell if your religion has become baggage in your life is when your relationship with God has become all about you And it's not really about him and his glory anymore. Listen, when it's all about me and what I can get from God, I have to remember he's already given me everything I need. What else do you need? If he's given you eternal life, if he's given you purpose, if he meets your every need, what what else are we chasing after? And yet we keep chasing and chasing and chasing, and we think if we chase God, he's the one that has everything. He could just keep giving us stuff. And of course we're allowed to ask him for things. He loves it when we come to him and cry out to him in need. I'm not suggesting you don't do that, but let's not forget, our greatest need is for him. We've got to get our eyes on him. Not for what we can get from him. Another thing you can watch out for, if you're wondering whether your religion has become a burden for you, if you find yourself getting angry with God when you don't get what you want, Your religion is becoming baggage for you. Some of us have bought into this genie-in-the-bottle view of God, and I don't blame you because there's a lot of preachers out there preaching this stuff. If you just give enough money, have enough faith, believe hard enough, pray the right prayer, buy my book, you'll get all the stuff that you want. God's just waiting to make your life easier and easier and easier. Or so they say. Some of us have bought into that a little bit. And when we pray and we still find ourselves at the mortuary, our hearts are broken twice. Not only have we lost a loved one, but now we've lost our hope in God. Because we followed the rules. We didn't get what we want. And we do everything we know how to do religiously. But our rabbit's foot faith doesn't work and we think that means that God can't be trusted so we turn our back on God. We think that means that God can't be good so we turn our back on God. We think that maybe God doesn't even exist so we turn our back on God because I followed the rules and I didn't get the outcome I wanted. And in the midst of our pain, we carry the extra baggage of feeling abandoned by God. Do you see how the enemy just ties the knot? Friends, God has not abandoned you. He will never abandon you. But sometimes we abandon him. We abandon him by replacing a living, vibrant relationship with the one true God with some sort of hocus-pocus faith that's going to get us what we want in the short term. If I check all the religious boxes, everything will be okay, we think. But friends, I promise you, no matter how religious you are, you're still gonna go through some terrible hardships in life. Every one of us. Your religion can't keep you out of hardship, but your relationship with Christ can carry you through your hardship. And that makes all the difference. I love, love, love the 23rd Psalm. A lot of you love the 23rd Psalm. There's this section right in the middle where David says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the psalm doesn't say, because you are with me, I can walk around the valley of the shadow of death. You know what else it doesn't say, though? It doesn't say, I live in the valley of the shadow of death. It says, even though I walk, what? Through, through Through the valley. It's, It's for a time, it's for a moment. It hurts, it's dark, it's scary. It's all those things. We all know, we've all been there. Some of us are there right now. But I will not fear evil because God is with me. He comforts me with his rod and his staff. It's the relationship And I know people who have just been so faithful about church attendance and tithing and and, uh, signing up to volunteer and all those things, and their lives are still empty because that relationship with Jesus is somehow missing. Friends, can we just stop putting our faith in religion? We've got to stop putting our faith in faith believing if i just have the enough faith if i just have the right faith we got to stop putting our faith in gimmicks well somebody told me if i pray this prayer every day my gosh if you are one of the lovely people who sends me those things on facebook that says if i just forward this three great things will happen to me today <laughs> i want to ask you kindly knock it off <laughs> that kind of thinking is poison These gimmicks, if I just do this, if I just go there, if I just say this, if I just pray the right prayer in a real King James kind of voice, then God will do what I want him to do. We gotta stop putting our faith in this garbage because it's disappointing us and leaving us hopeless and broken. And God came to give us life and that more abundantly. Let's put down the baggage of religion and start putting our trust in Jesus. He will never leave you or forsake you. Religion will always be another heavy bag for you to carry. Jesus offers to carry your burdens for you. So which do you choose? Religion or Jesus? The choice is yours, and it's a choice we make again and again and again and again and again throughout our day. But what you do with that choice will make all the difference. God is not your errand boy, but he would love to be your best friend. Let's stand and pray together. Father, here we are, a bunch of religious folks in a church building, hearing a message on how we shouldn't be so religious. And I pray you to help us each in our own lives to just sort that out, figure out what that looks like for us. How do we, how do we stay faithful? How do we take seriously your commands? How do we, how do we walk in obedience while at the same time uh, not treating you like some sort of lucky icon. God, help us to know you and in knowing you, to trust you more. Help us to walk with you, not to try to impress you, but because we're so impressed with you. Help us to keep our eyes on you, whether we're in this building or any other. Help us to love you with all of our heart and put down the baggage of religion that the world has thrown upon us. We thank you for the opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen.